We're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 10, the next to last chapter dealing with the rise and reign and fall of King Solomon. We'll read from chapter 10 of uh, 1 Kings. Before we read that, let's pray together. You are the king. Let the earth be glad. And you are a king greater than this king, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would send your spirit to us, that we might worship in spirit and in truth, and hear of this word, and be pointed past the shadows to the substance. You are the substance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his Relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of almagwood and precious stones. The king used the almagwood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much Almagwood has not been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 becas of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King, Sol King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. 
The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku. They imported chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. When I was in about the seventh grade, my family took a road trip vacation to go and see the Grand Canyon. We road tripped from our home in Hingham, Wisconsin, all the way to Arizona for this. We, we made a number of stops along the way, but the main attraction was the Grand Canyon itself. And I had seen pictures, and I had seen posters, and I, I had heard of the grandness of the Grand Canyon, and so my family and I eager anticipated seeing this Grand Canyon with our own eyes. And so we traveled the 1,739 miles from our home to the canyon in Arizona. Well, the Queen of Sheba makes a very similar journey. She hears of the, the greatness of Solomon. She hears of his great God, of his great palace, and his great temple, of his great wealth, and his great wisdom. And she decides that if there is a king who is indeed this great, he must be visited. He must be seen herself. And so she gets all this, all this baggage and all these people and all these camels ready, and she travels the 1,796 miles from Sheba on the coast of modern-day Yemen to Jerusalem. Now that's only 60 miles more than the trip from my home in Wisconsin to the Grand Canyon, but we took the trip in my parents' Ford Aerostar minivan. She took the trip on camels. A trip that would have taken us two or three days would have taken her months each, each way. So finally we arrived at the canyon, and it exceeded my expectations. It was incredible. It was incredible, this grand canyon carved out by an incredible power of water, a catastrophic event, this grand canyon lie before us, and the drop-offs were terrifying, and the, the views and the vistas were breathtaking. That's exactly the response that the Queen of Sheba has when she comes to see King Solomon. When the queen of Sheba comes to see King Solomon, the text says that she was overwhelmed, but the, the Hebrew text literally says there was no more breath in her. You get, the, you get the, the sense that she comes and she sees all of Solomon's great grandness in, in every respect, and she says, wow. 
And she can't say anything more. And then once she gets her breath back, she goes on. The text says, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. Not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. And this is the author of King's way of making two important related similar points to us. The first point we need to look back to 1 Kings 3.12 to see. In 1 Kings 3, verse 12, the Lord makes a promise to Solomon. And he says, I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And so here this foreign dignitary, almost certainly well-versed in the wisdom and proverbs of the day, she comes to see Israel's king, and on the lips of this foreign, probably pagan queen, from her lips come a fulfillment of God's promise. This, this Gentile queen says, you have great wisdom, far greater than I had expected. And the, the author of Kings is saying, look, see, God keeps His word. That's the point that the author of Kings continues to make, even perhaps obsessively continues to make. God always, always keeps His Word. And He keeps His Word so consistently and so obviously that even foreign, pagan, Gentile queens can see that God keeps His Word. The second point, which is very similar, requires us to go back to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Solomon is praying. This is the great grand prayer at the dedication of the temple. And in the middle of Solomon's great grand dedicatory prayer, he prays this for Gentiles and foreigners in verses 41 to 43. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand in your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Then later in the opening verses of chapter 9, the Lord responds to Solomon and says, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. The Lord hears Solomon's prayer. The Lord loves Solomon's prayer. And in the coming of the Queen of Sheba, the Lord answers Solomon's prayer. This was always the design of God. The plan of God was never to limit His glory and His salvation to Israel. The plan of God was always to use Israel to bring the nations, all the nations, to worship Him. And God had told this to Abraham, the father of Israel. He'd given Abraham a promise, and He says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations, not just Judah, not just Israel, but all the nations, including in this instance the queen of Sheba and Sheba itself, are to be blessed through the people of Israel. So how was this queen blessed? Well, she was blessed in that she leaves with great wealth. 
but she had left quite the fortune behind for Solomon as well. And she is blessed as well in that she sees the greatness of all of Solomon's architectural accomplishments. And she's blessed because she sees his wealth. But I think most of all, even more than being blessed by his wisdom, the Queen of Sheba is blessed because when she sees God's great king, she worships Israel's great God. She says, the very end here, she says, Praise be to the Lord, your God. She comes, and above all else, she sees the greatness of our God. And she is so blessed that she is able to proclaim, Praise be to the covenant, promise-keeping Lord of Israel. This was always the intention of God that foreigners would come to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and praise God. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 56, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And even long after Solomon was dead and gone, still the house of the Lord was meant to be a house of prayer, not only for Israel, but for all the nations. He jumped forward about a thousand years to when, when Jesus is walking the earth. In the very last week of his life, Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, right? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Make way for the king. Make way for the son of David. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record him going to the temple, and what he sees in the temple disgusts him. Because there are merchants selling all kinds of animals for sacrifice. And it's a big, stinky barnyard. And there are people exchanging Roman money for temple currency and taking advantage of the people. And it's this grand, smelly circus. And where was all this going on? It was going on in the court of the Gentiles. It was where the other people who weren't Israelites were to come and worship the God of Israel. It was where people like the Queen of Sheba were to come and give praise to the God of Israel. This was the place where all the nations were to come and worship God. And they had turned it into a nasty sty in a place of corruption. And Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah as He turns over the tables and drives out the animals. In Luke 19, when Jesus entered the temple courts, He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, He said to them, My house will be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Mark quotes the whole of that passage. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Of course, neither Solomon's temple or its replacement stands anymore. Both those temples have tumbled. Now on the Temple Mount stands a mosque, the Dome of the Rock. 
which is really no more significant than the standing of any other mosque in any other place because the temple was never really about the temple. The temple was always about Jesus. Jesus is the point of the temple. And Jesus makes this point. In John 4, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. And this conversation is Jesus confronting this woman with her sin, and she tries again and again and again to deflect all of what Jesus says to her. And in this conversation, finally, the woman being a Samaritan and Jesus being a Jew plays the religious trump card, and she says, you Jews say we need to worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on a different mountain. And Jesus says, the Jews are right. Then he goes on to say this, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. With the coming of Jesus and His ascension into heaven, it matters not whether we worship God in Jerusalem or Jakarta. What matters is that we worship God in the Spirit and in the truth of Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. It's in the person of Jesus that we worship God. It's in the person of Jesus that God dwells most infinitely and eternally with His own people. And we see this is spoken at the very beginning of Jesus' life when He's just days old. His parents, in obedience to the law, bring the the child Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And we know they're poor because they sacrifice a couple of of doves or pigeons instead of sacrificing the more rich of the sacrifices. And they bring Jesus into the temple, just this little, ordinary-looking child. And there's an old man there by the name of Simeon who was told by God that he would not die until he had seen the redemption of Israel. And Simeon comes out and he's told by the Lord that this is the child, this ordinary looking child born of poor parents, this is the Redeemer of Israel. And Simeon says he will be a light to the Gentiles. That's exactly what the temple was always meant to be. It was meant to be a place where the people of the world would hear of the great God and come and worship. The temple was meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 6, speaking of Himself, now something greater than the temple is here. It is Jesus who, like Solomon and His splendor, draws people of every nation to worship the one true God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. So who are we in the story? We're not Solomon. Jesus is Solomon. We're the queen of Sheba. We are those who have come from far off nations, have heard of the greatness and the grandness of Israel's God. And though He is not ours by race or descent, yet He becomes ours by faith and by worship. But Jesus is not only Israel's grand temple. He is also God's great King. 
Consider the greatness of Solomon. He receives 666 talents of gold a year. And verse 15 says that's not even all of it. 666 talents of gold is roughly equivalent to 25 and a half tons. That's how much gold Solomon receives in a year. There's so much gold in Solomon's reign that they don't even, they don't even use silver. It's not worth anything. They just use silver to buy things from other countries where silver still has some value. There is such wealth in this place, and it comes from all the wisdom of Solomon and all these other nations that pay him tribute. He has this thriving import-export business in luxury chariots. He has the greatest throne and the greatest kingdom. He even has a zoo full of all kinds of exotic animals. Solomon is the, the greatest king of all the earth in his time. We might even say that he's the, the king of kings in his own day. But Solomon wasn't the last and he wasn't the greatest of the kings. Solomon would one day die. His kingdom would tear. His temple would tumble. And one day his great nation would go off into exile. There was yet a greater king coming. And Solomon speaks of this greater king. Solomon, who is a very perplexing character in the scriptures to me, he, he writes Psalm 72. I want to read just a few stanzas of this holy song. He says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness, he will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Solomon is not this king. Solomon is a great king, but he is not this great. Jesus is this king. Jesus reigns over all the nations. Jesus rules forever. Solomon was Israel's king. Jesus is heaven's king. Solomon had great wealth, all the wealth of the world, but Jesus has the very treasures of heaven at his disposal. Solomon was wise unlike any other, but Jesus is himself the incarnation of the wisdom of God. Solomon exceeded all the expectations of that queen. Jesus exceeds all the expectations of all people everywhere at every time. Jesus is God's great King. One commentator describes the relationship between Solomon and Jesus this way. We have seen in the grandeur of Solomon a preliminary earthly sketch of the messianic kingdom. When we look at Solomon, a great king with a great kingdom, and a great audience. We shouldn't stop there. But we ought to look past the shadow to the substance and look for God's ultimate king who reigns over God's kingdom with an audience of countless multitudes from every tribe and tongue and people and nation forever. There's a couple lessons wrapped up in this passage for us. Each of them has a warning, and each of them has a silver lining as well. And the first lesson is that we 
should beware of the terrible, destructive power of sin. Now, how does one come to that point from a passage so great and grand and full of gold as this one? We need to remember where the author of Kings writes from. He writes a few hundred years later from Babylon. He records all of this from annals and records of a kingdom that no longer exists. There is no more palace. There is no more king. There is no more throne. There is no longer a kingdom. It is all gone. And it is all gone because of sin. If you look at your life, and you see anything even remotely resembling Solomon in his splendor, praise God. But it can be gone in a moment. Because sin seeks out things that are good to destroy them. And if Solomon, God's king, and the temple, God's house, which he had blessed with his presence even in the cloud of glory, if Solomon and his temple can be destroyed by the effects of sin, you and all things in your life may be destroyed by the effects of sin if you do not repent and come to Christ in faith. But there's a silver lining. And the silver lining is this. God's people will persevere. This author writes in relative poverty a long, long ways away from Jerusalem, uh, far away in every way from the glory of Solomon's great kingdom. But the author writes with hope. He writes expecting another king to come. Perhaps you sit in the ruins of your sin. Perhaps you look around and you see nothing like the good old days. And you look around you and even when you think back to those good days, it brings hurt because you recognize how much has been lost. Yet there is hope. There is real hope. The author of Kings was looking forward to the coming of a king far greater than Solomon. And that king came. His hope was realized. And the king was Christ. And you too may dare to hope for better days. And you too may dare to hope for a better king. And you too may dare, even must dare, to hope for a greater kingdom. And Christ brings the greater kingdom. He brings the kingdom where there is no more sin. There is no more disease. There is no more death. He brings a kingdom with such wealth and splendor and glory that it makes Solomon's kingdom look like a ghetto in comparison. If you sit in the ruins of sin, you may look forward with confidence to that kingdom. And the second thing that we see here is very simple. No matter how far you must go, no matter at what cost, and no matter how long it takes you to get there, you must 
come see God's great king. That's what the Queen of Sheba did. She traveled an awful long way and an awful long time to see an inferior king. That's what the wise men did. When they saw the star of the star of the great son of David rise, those wise men came and they followed that star to a humble town in Bethlehem and they brought rich gifts and treasure with them and they laid it at this small child's feet and they worshipped him. When the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, she worships his God. When the wise men come to Jesus, they worship him because Jesus is Solomon's God. We are meant to come. We are meant to come to worship Israel's God. Same God worshipped by the queen and the wise men. Won't you come? You will come by God's grace. But if you won't come, Jesus offers a warning. In Matthew 12, 41 and 42, he says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. On the final day, those who would not come to King Jesus will be put to shame by that queen who traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see a vastly inferior king. And on that last day, those who would not come to Christ will be put to shame by the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of a lesser prophet. Will you in that last day be put to shame by men of Nineveh and a queen of the south who repented and believed on the witness and the testimony of inferior prophets and kings? May it never be. Those wise men and that queen, they came to those kings with wealth and with praise and with honor. And we come with all those things. But we come with one more thing. We come with wealth and with praise and with honor and with our whole selves. You see, that queen from the south, when she came to Solomon, she basked in his glory for a time, but eventually she goes back to her homeland. But when we come to God's great King, let us stay. Let us sit and bask in the glory of God's great King forever. Let's pray. Oh God, let us bask in God's great King and in His presence forever. God, those of us who sit in the ruins of sin, give us hope that this King is coming 
And that He comes with a kingdom that goes beyond our, our wildest expectations. And we pray that we would hope for that. And we know that our hope is not a fingers-crossed hope. We have a sure and certain hope because you guarantee our hope with your word. You always keep your word. And we pray that we would never be outdone by that queen or those men of Nineveh, but that we might come like the wise men and bring everything that we have and all that we are and lay it at Jesus' feet and praise His name. Give us that grace. Put Your Spirit in us that we might desire to come. To leave whatever it is that hinders us behind. No matter how precious to us. Your Son says even to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands if they keep us from coming. We pray that You would bring us to Your Son. He is great. We remember Solomon's wisdom, but recall when Jesus comes to the temple with wisdom even as a boy that astonishes and takes the breath out of those who listen. We want to see the breathtaking King. So will you show Him to us and draw us to Him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.